Let me briefly pray before we start. Dear Father, I pray that uh, your word would be clear to us this morning. Um, help me to speak clearly and faithfully and help us to see your son Jesus clearly. I pray that we would see that um, we're hungry um, and Jesus invites the hungry to have life in him. Amen. Everyone's heard of the five love languages, you know, words of affirmation, quality time. Um, I've learned quickly, though, in my relationship with my fiance Ness, that there's actually a sixth and most important love language of food. The importance of food is now very deeply felt in our relationship. Um, words of affirmation just don't quite seem to make Ness feel as loved as when I surprise her with fresh croissants or, or hot chips. I'm sure I'm not alone in this experience. Uh, and it makes sense, right? As humans, we get hungry. You know, hunger is one of the most fundamental human instincts that we have. We need to eat. And food and our hunger, it dictates a lot of our day, right? Thank you. <laughs> food and our hunger, it dictates a lot of our day. From the moment we wake up, we're likely either thinking about what we're going to eat today or what we're going to try hard not to eat today. Hunger is one of the most fundamental human instincts that we have. And likely we don't think about that enough. In Sydney in 2023, we stress about a lot, but I don't think we stress about where our next meal is coming from. But we're hungry for more than just food as well. Just as instinctive for us as humans, I think, is a fundamental desire um, and hunger for life. And by that I mean there's a deeper hunger and desire in all of us to live and experience life in a particular way that we think is good. One fundamental characteristic of hunger is that you're hungry now and you're looking ahead to the future, to the thing that you think is going to satisfy you. This nature of hunger is true when it comes to food, but it's true as well when it comes to our life hungers. No matter what stage of life we're in, whether we're studying, working full-time, a full-time parent, retired, no matter what stage you're in, we're thinking about and we're making life decisions. You know, we're looking ahead into the future and we're thinking, what direction is best for me to go? What can I do in life where it's going to be best for me? You know, do I enrol in that university degree? Do I take that job? Do I move to live in this place? Do I pursue that relationship? For me, I'm nearly two years out of uni and I'm working full time and it's true for me. I'm thinking about where is the best way for me to go into the future. There's all sorts of things that I feel hungry for, you know, a family, a comfortable living situation, a chill yet rewarding job that will pay me well. And I also feel the fear of, well, what if I go in the wrong direction and I look back in five, ten years' time and I've made the wrong call and I haven't reached what I wanted to reach and life isn't as good as what I thought it would be. Our world and our culture seems to want to validate our life hungers. You know, you long for something, go after it, work hard for it. In the passage that we're looking at tonight, Jesus makes a big and exclusive claim about himself, one that opposes our society's culture. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Big claim. And a strange claim, right? Jesus is saying he's bread. What's he going on about? We rightly have lots of questions as we read this. 
But as we come to this passage, my hope for us is that we would see that we're hungry, hungry for life, but that we would see that Jesus is inviting the hungry to have life in him. Jesus invites the hungry to have life in him. Jesus' claim about being the bread of life is a particularly strange claim if we don't understand the context for this statement. So keep your Bibles open as I'll do a bit of jumping around the chapter. But what I think is helpful for us to understand in the context of Jesus' big claim is that just like for us, the Jewish people had a physical hunger for food as well as a deeper hunger for life as well. Have a look and see how John makes this clear. At the start of John 6, Jesus feeds a hungry crowd of 5,000 men. This crowd would have actually been more like upwards of 15 to 20,000, including women and children. And in verse 5, we see Jesus recognise the physical hunger of the people that have been following him. And he miraculously feeds them from a boy's small basket of bread and fish. This is no doubt an incredible expression of Jesus' power here. But it's helpful as well for us to see the significance of bread for these Jewish crowds. In the physical sense, the average Jew would spend roughly 85% of their income on food. Most of the time, uh, that would be bread. Um, for first century Jews, they didn't walk down the Woolies aisle deciding whether they'd you know, go for a tip-top white loaf or splurge on a panna di cassa. It was, it was just bread, and, and that was their staple meal uh, most of the time. So you can imagine being a Jew in these crowds, seeing Jesus miraculously provide you and your family with food. This is pretty incredible, right? And so from the get-go, John displays that the crowds clearly have a physical hunger for food. And it seems like Jesus is the perfect solution for their hunger, the perfect bread machine, perhaps. But John also demonstrates that they have a deeper life hunger as well. In order to properly understand what's happening on the life hunger side, there are some important things that John includes in his account. Have a look at verse 4. John, at the start of this section, lets the reader know what time of the year it was. It was Passover, the feast of the Jews. This Passover feast was an annual, annual cultural and religious celebration for the Jewish people, with the purpose being for God's people to look back and remember and celebrate how God had delivered his people out of slavery in Egypt. And God did some pretty incredible things, didn't he, in, in that Exodus story. He brought them out of Egypt. He parted the sea. He sustained them in the wilderness as they traveled. And notably, he sustained them uh, with food and water, with this special uh, bread from heaven called manna. Just like their ancestors in Egypt, the Jewish people of Jesus' day were hungry for the life of freedom. Hungry for the life of freedom because they lived under Roman oppression. The Roman Empire ruled over them and they were hungry for their freedom. They had a political hunger. The Jews at this Passover time would have been remembering and celebrating how God had brought their ancestors freedom from oppression in Egypt. And when they saw the sign that Jesus performed, you can imagine what they were thinking. You know, here is this guy providing us food like Moses did in the wilderness. And this is who God has sent to bring us back our freedom. Let's make him king. And you can see in verse 15, that's actually what they look to do. They look to make him king. But Jesus perceives this and he withdraws away from them. 
So there's two hungers on display in John 6. The obvious physical hunger, the crowds need to eat, and also this deeper life hunger as well. But we get a hint here at the end of this section that the crowds have likely misunderstood Jesus. Because when they want to make him king by force, how does Jesus respond? Well, he leaves. It's clear through this early part of John 6 that the Jews are hungry, right? Hungry for food and for life. And Jesus cares about feeding them. But the question is, how is Jesus going to feed our life hunger? How is Jesus going to address our life hunger? Well, after Jesus withdraws from the crowd for some time, he and the disciples eventually uh, go across the sea to another place called Capernaum, and the large crowds who had been following also eventually find their way uh, over to Jesus. And as they come to him, um, it's clear in this dialogue between Jesus and the crowd uh, that we get this fuller picture of how the hungry crowds have misunderstood Jesus. They totally miss him, and it's because they're blinded by their physical hunger for food and their life hunger as well. This becomes clear straight away at the start of the section. Pick up with me in verse 15. The crowds finally find Jesus on the other side of the sea at Capernaum, and as they come to him, they ask him, Rabbi, teacher, when did you come here? Notice here, Jesus doesn't care to respond or answer their question. Uh, he responds in verse six, 26 instead, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Here are thousands of people searching after Jesus. And when they come to him, Jesus doesn't respond the way we might expect. He even sounds a little aggravated. And it's strange, isn't it? Jesus has come to be king. So why does he get upset with this crowd when people come to follow him? Well, it's because Jesus cares about the motivations that we have for following him. He cares about our hearts. Have another look in verse 26. Jesus challenges their motivations for seeking him. You are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Jesus is essentially saying, you're not following me for the right reasons. You're doing it for the wrong reasons. What's he going on about? What is Jesus criticizing about their motivations? Well, he's criticizing them for not seeing the signs. That is, for not seeing the sign as a sign. It's a bit like if you were driving up the North Coast, say you were going for a week's holiday trip up to Coffs Harbour, and as you're driving through Newcastle and you're passing the road signs, which are saying you've got another 400 kilometres or so to go, imagine if you jumped out of your car and you just stared at the sign that's pointing you onto Coffs Harbour, and you stayed there for your week off. That'd be ridiculous, right? But the sign isn't the end destination. The whole point of the sign is that it's pointing you onto something else, to something better and more important. Well, that's exactly what Jesus is saying here to the crowds. The miracle that I just performed where I fed you all bread and fish, that was a sign pointing you to something better and more important. The crowds don't seek Jesus because of that. They're fixated on the bread. Sadly, these hungry crowds misunderstand Jesus. Why? Because they have a physical hunger 
for food and a life hunger for a political leader who will bring them their freedom. And they're blinded because of that. As I read through John 6 in preparation for this talk, I initially found it hard to empathise with the Jewish crowds who had seemed to misunderstand Jesus so blatantly and obviously that it almost seemed silly to me. You know, even as this conversation continues to play out, they just still don't quite get it, even though Jesus continues to explain himself. However, I have grown to empathise with the crowds more, particularly in seeing how they would have felt that their deepest hungers and desires would have been satisfied in Jesus. Yet despite that, they completely miss him. As we come to this passage, it's helpful for us to empathise with the Jewish crowds in order for us to reflect on our motivations as we come to Jesus. And also for us to reflect uh, on the deep longings and hungers that we have in life. One of the reasons I think it can be hard for us to empathise with the crowds is maybe because we don't necessarily think we come to Jesus with ulterior motives. But maybe a better question to ask is, how are you going at treasuring Jesus in your life? Do you delight in God because of who he is and in knowing him personally as your father? In the last week, have your thoughts, your actions, your stresses, have they reflected that you treasure Jesus above all else? If not, maybe we are more like the crowds than we initially think. Jesus' I am statement gets to the heart of what life is about. And he's speaking to all people here. Read with me, verse 35. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus has said the crowds have missed the purpose of the sign. So what's the purpose? Jesus' feeding of the 5,000 was signifying that he is the bread of life. Come to him and believe. Well, what does this mean? It almost feels more confusing. Um, it's a strange metaphor as well, isn't it? How is, how is Jesus like my panna de casa loaf? Well, in his I am statement, Jesus is concerned with teaching two key things to these crowds. One, who he is, and two, how they and how we need to respond to him. So firstly who he is. Jesus says that he is the bread of life. When people come to him, they won't hunger or thirst. This feels like a really strange metaphor for Jesus to use, Uh, but if we look back to verse 27, straight away we see that this isn't physical bread that Jesus is talking about. He wants the crowds to look beyond the physical, beyond the material. Have a look at verse 27. Jesus says, "'Do not work for the food that perishes,' but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. There's a few really important things that Jesus teaches about himself here. The first is that he's the Son of Man. This was a phrase that in one sense just meant to be a man, Son of Man, human. But this was also a phrase that was used in the Old Testament in places like the book of Daniel to describe God's promised king. I think that's what Jesus is picking up on here. He is announcing that he is the promised king and that God the Father has set his seal. This is God, the Father's plan 
for Jesus to be the king. And it's the Son of Man, it's Jesus who is going to give this food, this bread, which endures to eternal life. So Jesus here is firstly demonstrating who he is. He's the promised king of the Old Testament who has come backed by God to give them this food that endures to eternal life. And what's the food? What's the bread? Well, it's him. Jesus has come to give himself to us. That's the first point. Jesus teaches the crowds who he is. And secondly, Jesus teaches the crowds how they need to respond to him. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus teaches that the crowds must respond by simply coming and believing. If we jump back to verse 28, the crowds misunderstand Jesus once again. In fact, as Jesus has explained to them who he is, they ignore that, and instead they pick up on something which is actually not that central to what Jesus has just said. Have a look at what they pick up on. They pick up on what they need to do to get this eternal food. They pick up on work. How often is this also us? We can also be just as transactional, can't we? What must I do to earn this thing, to get this thing? Have I pleased Jesus enough in the way that I've lived this past week to feel able to approach him? Life in Jesus runs contrary to this idea. And in verse 29, Jesus shows this as he dismisses their misunderstanding once again. What does he say there? No, no, this isn't a work that you do. Firstly, this is a work of God. And instead, Jesus wants us to merely come and believe. And in verse 30 to 34, we see these two ideas that Jesus is teaching come together. It's clear that if you misunderstand who Jesus is, then you won't respond appropriately. We must understand who Jesus is in order to respond rightly. It sounds really simple and obvious, but the crowd's response to Jesus throughout this chapter shows that they don't understand. Right? They misunderstand Jesus, and they've ultimately misunderstood God the Father. Read with me from verse 30. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Interestingly here, the crowds are the ones who reference this Old Testament passage about Moses providing bread from heaven, not Jesus. And they do so in order to persuade Jesus to provide them with more bread. They're fixated and caught up on the material bread, and their response in verse 34 is telling. As Jesus tells them that the bread is he who has come down from heaven to give life to the world, the crowds ask for Jesus to give them this bread always. And you might think for a second, well, maybe they've finally got it. Maybe, maybe they're asking for this true bread that Jesus is talking about. But Jesus, who sees their hearts, exposes their unbelief. And have a look at what he says in verse 36. You have seen me and yet do not believe. The crowds want the gifts, but they don't want the giver. 
They come to Jesus, but not to believe. They settle for the flimsy bread which goes into their bellies one day, but which they hunger for the next. And they ignore the one who is the true bread of life, the one in whom when we come and believe, we have life. In between finishing year 12 and starting uni, I had a close mate who was doing lots of thinking about spiritual things and he was investigating the claims of Jesus in the Bible. He wasn't someone who believed in Jesus, but it really felt to me that he was grasping uh, what Jesus was on about. And just before we started uni, uh, he said to me, Mike, I think there's some really good stuff in this Jesus thing. But if I'm being honest, there's just so much that I want to go off to uni and do and experience and enjoy. I don't think this is the right time. Maybe later down the line. This middle section of John 6, where Jesus declares that he is the bread of life and exposes the unbelief of the crowd, is a crucial crossroads moment for these crowds as they're confronted with the reality that what they feel hungry for in this moment is not what Jesus has come to give them. He's come to give them something so much better, right? Himself, coming and believing in him, the Lord and the King of all creation. Sadly, like my mate, the crowds reject Jesus. And it becomes clear here that life in Jesus challenges our other life hungers. But in the rest of this chapter, we see that life in Jesus is God's good plan for us. In verse 41, we see the Jewish crowds finally understand what Jesus has been explaining to them. And John writes that they respond by grumbling about Jesus. This guy just said he's come down from heaven. This is Jesus. This is you know, Joe Blow from down the road. We know his mum and his dad. We, Mary and Joseph, we've grown up with this guy. What's he going on about? Jesus in verses 43 to 44 says, Don't grumble amongst yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. When the crowds of people say, This is crazy. We can't believe this. Jesus responds, you're right. You can't believe this. God is the one who must draw you. God draws us to Jesus to see the truth of what we're incapable of seeing on our own. God is the one who draws. And if he does, we will come and believe and be raised up on the last day. When all is said and done with this world, we will be raised up with Jesus for eternity. From this passage, we've seen what it means for Jesus to be the bread and how we are to respond. He is true life, and we must come and believe. Live lives where we treasure him above all else. But in verse 51, Jesus says something strange. Have a read from verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And even more striking and visceral from verse 54, Jesus says, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Jesus uses visceral and striking imagery here, doesn't he? But there are two key things which help us understand what Jesus is saying. 
The first is what he's already said about how we must respond to him in coming and believing. Jesus isn't giving us a new way to eat him, and I don't think he's talking about us metaphorically eating him through the Lord's Supper either. This is well before that. Jesus, all through this chapter and in his I Am statement, has clearly declared that he is the bread of life, and we respond to him by coming and believing. But how is Jesus this bread? How can he give us life and do away with the consequences of our sin? It's by his death. In these verses, Jesus is talking about us coming to him as the one who dies for us, the one who shed his blood for us. Jesus uses visceral imagery to reflect the visceral reality that the promised king of God's plan will die on a cross so that sinners like you and me are able to come and approach Jesus. This is the gospel, right? This is the good news. And it's crazy when we stop and remember this truth. The one who gives us life, he dies. It's so important that we keep coming back to the truth of the gospel and what Jesus has done to save us. It's nothing we've done. We have a lot in common with the crowd of Jews in John 6, don't we? We're sinful people who can hunger for all sorts of things in life. But by God's grace in drawing us and only made possible by Jesus' death and resurrection, we are able to come and believe in Jesus and have life. Our world and our culture encourages us to pursue our life hungers. If you're longing for it, go after it. Jesus challenges and exposes our life hungers. Don't hunger for the wrong thing, he says. Eating food that's no good for you will have consequences. You may be hungry for Maccas, but that doesn't mean that eating it will be good for you in the long term, or the short term even. So what do you feel hungry for? Do you long for better relationships with the people in your life? Do you long for new relationships? Do you long for certain material possessions or comforts? If I finally got that thing, then life would be sweet. Do you long for a better job, a better home life? What is it for you? So many of these things are good things, aren't they, right? But does your longing for these things take you away from resting in the truth that life is in Jesus? I think that's one of the hardest things to grapple with in this passage. Jesus says, Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, shall never thirst. So why can I often feel hungry? I've come to Jesus. I I believe in him. So why do I still wrestle with longing for this other thing? Why do I sometimes feel like there's more outside of Jesus that I need to have lived a good life? I think there's two truths that sit behind this. The first is the spiritual reality that if we come and have believed in Jesus for life, there's nothing else that we need. There's nothing else to hunger or thirst for when it comes to life. If we're in Jesus, spiritually speaking, there is no more hungering, no more longing. We have life and we can have full assurance. The second truth that we have to hold with the first is the reality of the broken world that we live in because of sin. And in this broken world, our feelings and desires can mislead us, right? For us who have come and believed in Jesus for life, 
Though there is nothing else to hunger or desire or thirst for when it comes to life, we can still feel otherwise. And it's why all through the New Testament, writers like Paul and Peter will encourage followers of Jesus to abstain from passions of the flesh, to to not live for the other life hungers that are there, but to keep coming back to Jesus and to the gospel, and also to have our eyes firmly fixed on eternity where we'll be with Jesus forever. In this world, there will be times when we're confronted with a hunger for other things in life. The final section of John 6 demonstrates how this can play out. In verse 66, we see that many of Jesus' followers turn away. They no longer walk with him at this point. And there may be times when the question that Jesus asks of his close disciples in verse 67, we ask of ourselves, do you want to go away as well? Do I want to leave Jesus? Or even do I want to try living for Jesus and also these other life hungers that I feel as well? In these moments, we come back to Jesus come back to the gospel and hear the words of Simon Peter when confronted with the thought of leaving Jesus to live for something else. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Let's pray. Dear Father, thank you that you love us and it's your good plan to save us and give us life through your Son. Help us to see where we hunger for other things in life and help us, Father, to keep coming back to Jesus and to the gospel. Thank you that Jesus invites the hungry to have life in him. Pray that we would be those who come and believe and have life now and forever. Amen. Well, let's respond by singing the words of In Christ Alone. Let's all stand together.